This is going to be important today because there's a lot of people that aren't able to be here. Welcome to our Facebook Live, folks. Everybody, we're turning to Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And I uh, don't have my glasses in the pulpit, so we'll, we'll do the best we can. If I squint, just forgive me. Today we're going to continue on our study of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. And, of course, Paul wrote this as an entire letter. He sent it to that church in Rome in the first century, somewhere in the 60s, maybe 30 years after Jesus had risen from the dead. He wrote this letter, so they would have read it in much larger chunks than we're studying it in. And, but we're picking it apart to really try to dig in and understand it. And verses 28 through 30, there's they kind of stick together. There's a lot of continuity between these three verses. So I want to read all three of these verses as we begin our study. We, we studied verse 28, Christmas Eve. We studied verse 29 last week. And then we're going to be digging into verse 30 today. So let's just read it together now. Beginning in verse 28. And we know... That God causes all things to work together, or literally better, really. We know that all things work together, and the implication is that God's doing it. So in the mixing bowl of our lives, all of the ingredients, all of the circumstances, every single detail is, is in this bowl. And all of it, we know, is working together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. So Christians... For, he explains, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. And, now he continues on, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Before we even get into, did you see some loaded words in there? Some of you are familiar with some of the discussions that have taken place since Paul wrote this letter. Arguments that have led to positions that have led to divisions in the church. As soon as you hear the word predestination. I mean, that, to some people, that's going to conjure up an argument. You know, because these, the truths captured in these words are clearly taught in Scripture. But occasionally, there are a couple of concepts that create tension because the Bible teaches one thing, but then it also seems to teach another thing that is, forms an apparent contradiction. It is not a contradiction. It all fits together in God's mind. But to the human being, as we try to figure it out, it just doesn't seem to make sense. And so I've got this illustration up above that you've seen, some of you have seen before. Um, I think we're going to try to pick a different picture of it because can you see the two legs of that? That's the St. Louis Arch, the St. Louis Arches. Okay, some of you are familiar with this. You need reminding. Others of you, this will be new information. So I have found this so helpful. 
Sometimes when the Bible teaches one truth and it also teaches another truth that appears to contradict, they appear to contradict each other, if the Bible teaches it, it does resolve. But sometimes these difficult things resolve up in the clouds or up in the fog where we can't quite put it all together. And concepts like predestination, foreknowledge that we studied last week and we'll We'll expand on a little bit today. This is, those are, they raise issues like this. God, on one hand, on the, on the one side, teaches that he is absolutely sovereign. You know, you're reading stuff in the Old Testament now, I hope, that is just like, whoa, God did that? That doesn't seem right, or that doesn't seem fair. And we're going to get really into it in chapter 9 of Romans. So I want to set the stage here. Try to get, grasp this concept. The Bible teaches that God is absolutely sovereign. And I hope I don't use wrong words that trigger off uh, wrong thoughts in your mind. But the Bible teaches that he is in control of everything. And if he's God, outside of time, he knows the past, present, and future. His foreknowledge includes not just information before him, but uh, an intimate personal knowledge of events and people like us. We saw that last week. He knew you before he formed you in your mother's womb. And so that's there, and it's, it's, so then that can raise the question in our mind, as it does in, he anticipates that in chapter 9. So I know some of you are asking this question as we study this. Well, then how can I be responsible for my own choices? How can I be responsible for my own sin? I'm not a robot. I have free will, and, and there's this huge... Uh, it has caused wars within the church. It causes division in the church today because people try to get up into the fog and resolve this apparent contradiction in a way that they feel comfortable with. But I, I have not found a position yet that I feel 100% comfortable with. So I have to be content to stay down here, teach what the Word says. This says whatever it says, and if it raises questions, just I have to at some point say, I'm going to have to leave that in God's hands. God understands it. I can't fully resolve it, but I have to accept what it says in both pillars. I hope that makes sense to some of you. Now, as we encounter, as Christians, I want, to, I want this church to be, to, for the people in the church to be free enough Two, if you get into the clouds a little bit and you come up with your own personal conviction of some, that you can hold your personal conviction. We'll cover this in chapter 14 of Romans. And I can hold my conviction, and we can do it in love. And when it's appropriate, we can talk about it and try to learn from each other. In order to do that, we have to have a foggy attitude when we go into the fog. So by way of reminder to some of you, new information for others, I've come up with this little acronym, FOG, that I think describes the the mindset and heart attitude Christians must have in order to uh, maintain the unity of the Spirit even when we disagree with things. If I am prayerful, really praying for God's help, if I am humble, admitting that I don't know everything, I'm open to the possibility that I'm not right yet in this. I don't understand it fully. Maybe you have something I need to hear and learn from. And I'm gracious to you because you're free in the Lord to come up with your convictions just as I am. 
If I'm prayerful, humble, open, and gracious, and you are prayerful, humble, open, and gracious, we should be able to love each other and work through this and know when it's time to stop and just get back to work. Okay? Those are two illustrations that I think have been very helpful in kind of shaping the DNA that I think we have in this church and we want to have in this church. So having said that, let's dig into the text and more things will come up as we go. Let's look at verse 30. Let's reread verse 30. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So what we're going to see, first of all, is we're going to answer the questions. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? Who? Who is he talking about? The objects of God's actions. We're going to look at four things that God does in the life of a Christian. And we're going to see the objects that these actions are directed toward. Do you see that three times in our passage he uses the little words whom and then these? Whom he did this to? These, same ones. So he's talking about a group of people. Whom? And if you read verse, if if you read through chapter 8 of Romans, you'll see that Paul uses you, we, us, our, ourselves, and, and other words that refer to the same group over 50 times. So he's writing to a specific group of people. Who are these people? And the answer is, they are the people that he's been talking about in chapter 8, who have received the Holy Spirit, who are born-again Christians, who have been uh, bought by Jesus, who have been justified by putting their faith and trust in Christ. He's talking to the Christian church. And so if you are a Christian here today, he's talking to you. And so that's the the object of all of these actions. That answers the question, who? Let's move on to the question, what? Now, the New American Standard Study Bible said that what we're going to study now in these four verbs that we're going to study, we have the sequence by which God carries out his predestination. Now, in order to avoid a fight... I would drop the word predestination and I would say that what we're going to study is the sequence by which God carries out his predetermined plan and purpose for the Christian and the church. So this is how it happens in your life. If you are a Christian, this is the sequence of how God is doing it and has done it. All right? So we're going to look at now the description of God's actions. Four verbs, interestingly, all in the past tense. Do you notice that? All of them end in ED. They're, they're, they're spoken of as in the past. And that I'll come back to that. That will become important with the fourth and final one when we get to that. So the description of God's actions. So let's look at verse 29. And whom he predestined. So the first step in this sequence is God's predestination. To predestine someone or something is to determine it beforehand. We studied that in depth last week. Okay? 
And that's exactly what it says here. That I don't know any other way you can translate that word. But that God determined something would happen before it ever happened. He didn't just know about it. He determined it. Okay? That's one of the pillars in the, that arch I showed you. You've just got to accept that because that's clearly what the Bible teaches. So whom? He's talking about people. He's talking about me. He's talking about you. Whom he predestined. So we, again, we covered that last week. Let me show you a verse up above from Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. I quoted it last week, so bear with me, but you can see it for yourself. This is Peter praying to God after he had been released from jail. He had been arrested as a, as a Christian. Once he got out, he prayed this prayer. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, we saw last week, whom God foreknew, whom God predestined, both. So you have um, Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, that you do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. In Genesis chapter 3, when God said about the serpent that the serpent would crush, or the serpent would wound Messiah or the Savior's heel, and Messiah would crush the serpent's head. How could God say that if he didn't predetermine it? If he didn't know for sure that thousands of years later it was going to happen. And you could argue the foreknowledge argument that he looked down the corridor of time and he saw that it would happen and therefore he could talk about it. It's, but then you have to go back to last week's message about foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is not just knowing about something beforehand. It's knowing it in an intimate way, which goes right along with his predestining thing. This is what I believe the Bible teaches, that God determines the future. Before it happens. That's why he can say with 100% confidence that it's going to happen. Now that's my position. If you say, nope, that goes too far. That's too much for me. And, you know, that doesn't allow me freedom. That doesn't allow me to not be a robot. If that's where you land, I love you. And that's fine. We can disagree on that. But we should be able to be able to talk about it prayerfully, humbly, openly, and graciously. But this is what I believe the Bible clearly teaches. And I could draw up many, many other verses. But we already spent a lot of time on predestination last week. So let's move on to what Paul layers on top of it. What's the next step in the sequence in your life that God is doing to accomplish his ultimate purpose? So the first one, and whom he predestined, these he also called. I remember the night I was called. I won't bore you with the details again. But I've shared my testimony many times. It happened in my life. But that happened 40 years ago. So it's in the past. So in my life and in your life, I'm assuming you can look back and say, oh yeah, that's when God called me. Now the word then, letter B, called, really... It's used, look up in a concordance, the word call. How, where, where does it show up in the Bible? And you'll be surprised, I think, like I was, that it shows up way more than I expected. 
And it can be used to mean very different things in different contexts. Many times it means Adam called her Eve, called her. It's a naming of things. So that comes up many, many, many times. It can also be used of the general call that goes out. Remember Jesus said, many are called, few are chosen. So just the general proclamation of the gospel that some people accept, some people reject, that's a way that this word is used. But in this verse, it's used of what we call the specific call or the, the uh, effective call. It's the summoning. When God calls you, you, you respond. When he said, Tim, I'm knocking at the door of your heart. Look up. Come to me. Open the door. When he called me, I did it. This is the call that Jesus made to Peter and Andrew and James and John when they were fishing. He said, you, follow me. And they did. He went to Matthew's tax booth and he said, you, follow me. And he did. He said, Zacchaeus, come down. And he did. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. This is, this is the call that As I understand it, Paul's talking about in this verse. Those whom he predestined, these he also called, summoned. So now I look back at that and it's in the past tense. For all those Christians in the Roman church, it was in the past tense. The reason you're sitting here reading this letter is because he called you. Because he had predestined you. And then, once you are called and you hear the call and you open up your heart, and you put your faith and your trust in Christ, then you stand before the judgment seat of God, and he declares you what? Not guilty. That's what Paul's talked about in all of these verses in the book of Romans so far. The word justified, justification, means that you've been made just as if you had never sinned. That's, that's just an easy way to remember the meaning of that. You have stood before the bench of God, And you stood there guilty of sin, and you admitted it, and you deserved the death penalty. And then Jesus came out, and the the prosecuting attorney is right there throwing every accusation at you, the devil. And Jesus walks out as your defense attorney and your substitute, and he said, I'll take his sin. I'll bear his sin in my body on the cross, and he's trusting in me, so he's forgiven just as if I have the righteousness of Christ. I do. And so that's what justification means. And that's what he says next. Whom he predestined, these he also called. And when and whom he called, these he also justified. When you put your faith and your trust in Christ. So now for, for those of us who have done that, it's in the past tense. He already did that. That was the next step in the sequence. But now we move on to a word It's a little takes a little more explanation. Uh, we've all been listening to weather reports the last few days, haven't we? And, the, you know, the weatherman's joke, the one person who can be wrong X percent of the time and still keep their job. Yeah, because it's unpredictable. Nobody knows when it's going to warm up. Nobody knows for sure when the wind's going to die down. 
we just don't have that kind of knowledge. So we have to be very careful when we assume or presume on the future, right? I mean, human beings are just utterly limited in that way. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and engage in business and make a profit, spend a year there. And he says, you don't even know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And he goes on to say that instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live. Will I even be alive tomorrow? If the Lord wills, we shall live and then do this and that. Will I see you Wednesday morning at the Bible study? You know what I'm going to say, Lord willing. I have no idea what's happened in the rest of today. So we have to be careful with that. And so, interestingly, he refers to the next term, glorified, which is something that, for the most part, is going to be completed in the future. He refers to it, though, in the past tense. How can he do that? How, how could a weatherman could a weatherman say, "Oh, it's, it's warm outside"? You would say, "No, you're crazy." But if he were God, he could talk about it getting warm again in the past tense because it's going to happen. And so, similarly, glorified is uh, something that. We are waiting to have happen, and yet God refers to it in the past tense. So hold on to that thought, and we'll come back to it in a little bit. Look up above at Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Oh, I love this verse. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies into conformity with his glorious body by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. When is that going to happen? At the resurrection. When Jesus returns, his second coming, you've got to get these, this is the, the next big event on God's calendar is the second coming of Jesus. And Christians, we need to know that and believe it and hold on to that. And you're going to see why as we proceed. When Jesus returns, we are told with crystal clarity in Scripture, there's, I don't know of any debate about this, that when Jesus returns, he will turn this lowly body into conformity with his glorious body. The resurrection body that Jesus lives in now and will forever, we are going to be like that. Look at Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life now, is revealed, that's at the return of Christ, when he comes in exactly the same way as he left, he's going to return to the earth bringing with him uh, myriads of holy ones. He will bring the saints with him. All human beings will be raised from the grave. Jesus teaches this black and white, crystal clearly. That is going to happen. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Our lowly body transformed into his glorious body. 
the likeness of his glorious body. And famous verse, 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. What exactly am I going to look like at the resurrection? We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So, glorified is when we are finally and fully conformed to the image of Christ. That is God's ultimate purpose for you as a Christian, is for a human being to no longer... Romans 3.23, fall short of the glory of God. Ever since Adam's sin and the world fell into sin, and there's all this decay and disease and death all around us, ever since that happened, we have fallen short of the glory of God. But that's all going to be changed. That's all going to be renewed. And if you're a Christian, you can know that you will be fully uh, redeemed, I've got some other scriptures here that I'm going to look at in just a moment. So so what I'm trying to answer is why does God use past tense for something that's going to happen in the future? Why does he do that? How does he do that? And I've got two explanations. One is this, that God's final action, and you've got to understand, we've got to understand this about Romans 8.30, that God's final action of glorification um is grounded in his foreknowledge, his predestination, his calling, his justification of us. That he did all of that guarantees that he that the promise that he makes for our future glorification is going to happen. And so he can speak of it as if it is already completed and it is stated that way. We do use that language at times. And you know, it's already done. You know, somebody tells us to do something, we fully intend to do it, we've given them our word, and we say, it's as good as done. You know, it's already done. We can say that, we have to say that with reservation. God doesn't. And so God has stated, it's as good as, you're already glorified. So that's part of the answer, I think. The other part of the answer is, I think, that the glorification process has already started. He can say that, okay, I've, I've already tasted the resurrection. I've already tasted some of the glory. Peter talks about, in First Peter chapter, you can just jot, or do you have those written down? No. If you want to jot down a couple of other texts that came to me after the outline was printed, you could write these down. If you're going to do a Bible study, these would be helpful to look up. The first one is First Peter chapter 5, verse 1. 1 Peter 5.1, he said, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I saw Jesus die on the cross. And, listen to this, a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Peter was on the Mount of Transfiguration is what he's talking about, I think. And right after Jesus had predicted the resurrection in his own glory, he takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, and then he is transfigured, and his face shone like the sun, and his, white were, his clothes were whiter than anything you can imagine. 
And he, and Peter says, I partook of the glory that is going to be revealed. So Peter saw a glimpse of the glory that will be revealed fully when Jesus returns. Just another text These are, is in Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, where we read, But to, to, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at, rejoice now as we suffer, rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, when he comes again, you may rejoice with exaltation. And so we're looking forward to that. Um, I've got some other verses here. Colossians 3.10 would be another pertinent verse. I won't read it, but you can jot that down. Colossians 3.10. And then think of Matthew 5.16 for just a moment. I think this shows that we are already participating in the glory at the present time. Matthew 5.16. And they will let your light shine before men in such a way that they will see your good works and they'll glorify your Father in heaven. And by that I think they mean they'll, you'll, they'll give praise to God. But what are they seeing? It seems to me, if I understand the scriptures properly, that because I've already received the Holy Spirit, because we have already partaken of the glory to the degree that now we're able to bear the fruit of the Spirit. So like we studied last week, if people can look at me or look at you and they can see a love that is generated by the Spirit of God, joy that can only be explained as it's God doing it, peace that surpasses all comprehension, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those types of things. When people look at us, they will see the glory of God shining forth. So we're, what I'm saying is I think there's a sense in which we already have been glorified. It's as good as done, but it's already begun. As people, And let, let me quote to you from, let, let me read the Colossians 3.10 one actually because that, Really captures it. Colossians 3.10. Listen to this. He talks about us being renewed. He said, we've put on the new man who is being renewed. This is happening now. Put on the new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of of the one who created him. So I lost the image of God. Mankind lost the image of God or the perfect representation of his image when we sinned. But when Jesus came, he created a new humanity. He's the first Adam, Romans taught us. And we have already been justified. We've already been uh, glorified in the sense of We're now being renewed to his image. When someone looks at you and they see love, they see the image of God in you. And that's only possible for the Christian. So in that sense, I think we're already sharing in the glorification process. That's my whole point for saying all that. Now that I've totally lost you, let me get you back. Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will do what? Will perfect it. Will complete it. 
until the day of Christ Jesus. So my understanding is we should be getting, we should be displaying more of the glory of God every day as we say it, as we become more and more like Jesus every day, as he transforms us into the image. Don't be conformed, chapter 12, verse 2, be Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So it's happening now. So those are the two reasons I think he uses the past tense. All right. So we've answered the question. Who? Christians. 2,000 years ago, today, till Jesus returns. What? Whom he foreknew. These he predestined to become Conformed to the image of Christ, whom he predestined, these he called, whom he called, these he justified, whom he justified, these he glorified. It's as good as done. And it's happening now. It has begun. That's the what. When? Past? Present? Still to be ultimately consummated in the future? Who, what, when? Where? Everywhere it's happening, wherever there's a Christian. Now let's answer the question, why? Number three, the outcome of God's actions. The outcome of all of these these works of God that only God can do. So what is the outcome? Well, let's ask who, what, when, where, why. And I have Romans uh, 7.4 there, so if you'll just turn back a page or so from... Romans 8, let's look at verse 4 of chapter 7. So I'm trying to keep this in its context because, again, this, is, this letter was written as a unit, so we don't want to divorce it from its context. So what is the point Paul is trying to make? Why is God doing all this predestining and conforming into the image of Jesus and glorifying the Christian? Why is he doing that? Look at chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. When he died on the cross, you died with him. In order that you might be joined to another, to Jesus, to him who was raised from the dead. Why? That's what we're trying to answer. That, you see that? That we might bear fruit for God. All of that has happened. All of this process is happening so that we might bear fruit for God. So that's got to be the controlling thing in our lives. Why did he choose me? Why did he call me? Why did he save me? Why did he buy me? What am I here for? And the answer is to bear fruit for God. Now, how do we do that? And my final three points answer the question, how we bear fruit for God, given the struggling, the struggling that each one of us is going through every day with sin. Our flesh and our spirit are at war. And you experience it. I know you do. With all of that going on in my life, for my entire life, with all of the suffering, with all of the things that you are facing, some of you are facing really, really serious, heavy things. 
Others may just have a pile of straw on the camel's back of just little things that everywhere you turn, something is wrong. With all of that, all of the things that cause us to groan, my brother texted the family and said it's 41 below in Edmonton, Canada. And all flights have been canceled. De-icers don't even work. Um, the barons aren't here, but I wonder how cold it is for coal barren right now in Alaska. This is not good. It's okay for you to say, this is too cold. There's things about you. We get to have hot, hot drink. I don't know if that's hot or not, but we drink coffee and we have hot chocolate and it gets all romantic and we light a fire and it's wonderful to be cold. Cold is not normal. Cold is not the way I don't think it's going to be in the new earth. I don't think we're going to have 41 below on the new earth. The, the earth is groaning. And you know the noise your car made this morning when you started it? You're making that noise too, aren't you? And so are the trees, and so are the, the cricks that are freezing, and so are my horses, and so are all of the livestock. The whole earth is groaning for redemption. We are groaning for redemption. In the midst of all of that, what is going to make sure that we remain productive? And this is the point of Paul's letter. It is not so that you and I can have a theological argument 2,000 years later and start a new church over it. It was never designed to cause a fight. Paul understood exactly what he was saying. I don't think Paul was overly confused. I think... No, next, or in chapter 9, we'll see he does appeal to the cloud, the fog, just like, stop. You're asking questions you're never going to be able to answer. So stop. Stop fighting about it. Get back down. How are we going to bear fruit for God when all of these difficult things are going on in our lives and we are groaning for redemption and we are suffering? How are we going to maintain it? Here's the answer. Look at verses 24 and 25. Chapter 8, just back up a few verses. We've got to remember Paul just wrote this. Twenty-four and twenty-five. Four. First first thing is hope. We've got to maintain our hope. That's letter A. Four. We hope, in hope, we have been saved. And then he goes on to describe what biblical hope is. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one hope for something that he sees? So biblical hope is trusting, but, verse 25, if we hope for what we do not see, why would someone hope in something they don't see? Who promised it? God. So if God said it, that he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son, he's going to conform you to the image of his son. If he said he's going to raise your body on the last day, he's going to raise your body on the last day. So you can hope for that day with confidence and absolute certainty. That's biblical hope, believing in God's promises. So if we hope for what we do not see, okay, then with, letter B, a better word is endurance. With endurance, as soon as you get that written down, I'm going to give you the next slide. You know what's coming, don't you? What picture is the picture that we have of endurance? It's remaining under the weight. That's what that word means. 
Remain under the pressure. Stay there so God can accomplish what he's wanting to do in that pressure. I was watching the Hawkeye girls play yesterday, and I heard the quote that I quoted a few weeks ago, but I credited it to somebody else because I'd heard somebody else say, so I don't know where it started. A lot of these quotes are not original to the person you hear. But Coach Bluter gave a book to the girls to read, and in that book quoted, pressure is a what? Privilege. Pressure is a privilege. But she was quoting Billie Jean King, the author of this book back in the 70s. So whoever came up with it, the principle is true. Pressure is a privilege. Because it's under pressure. What happens to coal when it's put under pressure over a long period of time? What do you get? A diamond. What do you get when a human being is put under pressure and you remain under it? You don't just... Stop believing. You just don't take the path of least resistance. What do you do to be productive? You stay under it. And many of you, I, I know some of what you're going through. Your life is just getting pressed. Remain under the pressure so that God can accomplish. Endure. And without hope, you will never endure. So believe the promises of God, these things that Paul is teaching the church, and then endure under the pressure that he puts you under so that you can experience the sanctifying work in your life to make you more and more like Jesus and more glorifying to Jesus. And then finally, look at verse, the end of verse 25. If we hope for what we do not see, we with endurance, we wait eagerly for it. Go back to verse 23 for a second to reinforce this one. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we have the promise of the harvest, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, our sonship, the redemption of our body, the resurrection. So the final point, is eager expectation. Without hope, you will not endure. Without enduring, you will not, your prevailing attitude will not be to eagerly expect Jesus to return. As Peter said, fix your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the eager expectation of the Christian. We can't lose sight of that goal. Now, Warren Wearsby said, now I'm almost done. Warren Wearsby said, Why faint under the sufferings of this world when we have already been glorified? It is as good as done. It's going to happen. Absolutely. And I pray that this would be, would have the effect on our church that it should have had on the Roman church when Paul was inspired to write this to encourage us to keep our hope, to endure under all the pressure that you're under and you will be under, and just spend your time eagerly expecting Jesus to return and be about his business until he does. So will you bow your heads with me, please? And as I read this to you once again, just verse 30, would you meditate on this? Let the Holy Spirit impress upon you whatever you need to hear this morning.
and whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. 